0: in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze in you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie in my bed, I meditate on your death on you during the right watches because you are my helper i will rejoice in your shadow of your wings i follow close to you your right hand holds onto me but those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth they will be given over to the power of the sword they will become a meal for jackals but the king will rejoice in god all who swear by him will boast for the mouth of liars will be shut
1: Oh, good. good morning. Is this thing on? Oh, there we go. Well, it's lucky to be back uh, with you guys again. I was here in, uh, in September. Was anyone here in September? The yes. well, actually we were here in September didn't come back when they heard it was me. So these are all the holiday guests uh, here from Joburg, so don't worry. Um, yeah, it's lucky to be here again. Uh, like they said, I'm on holiday. So I packed my jeans, but I forgot to pack my shoes. But I knew that uh, coming to Cape Town, I was all right. This is how you Oaks roll down here, so I feel at home. Um, But it's lucky to be here with you. Uh, We often come here while we're on holiday. And so when Roger asked if I'd preach, I said, of course, I'm happy to preach. Last year I sat here while he preached, and I thought it'd be better if I just preached, uh, (laughs) uh, if he was away. So at least I know what's going to happen this morning if I'm preaching, eh? Some of you might be thinking, let's get Rog back. This hasn't started well. Um, We're looking at Psalm 63 this morning. Um, The Psalms are a wonderful uh, collection, uh, a book and collection of of books, of Psalms, uh, because there's like a Psalm for every occasion, uh, every stage of life, no matter what you're going through, there's a Psalm. And Psalm 63 is one of uh, many people's favorite Psalms, uh, but it's important to understand the context of. The psalm that was just read, we're going to revisit it quite a bit this morning. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, it'd be good to follow along. I think the verses might be up as well as we go through it. But if you have, I don't know if they do it on the phones, but in your Bible, sometimes they give a little description um, of what the psalm is about and when it was written and who it was written by. In psalm 63, the description of it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So uh, There are a couple of times when David is in the wilderness. If you know the, the story of the life of David, uh, he was sort of plucked from obscurity uh, and anointed as the king. And then the, the, the current king, Saul, wanted to kill him, basically. I'm giving you the summary of it. Um, and he goes on the run and he ends up in the, in the wilderness of Judah uh, running for his life uh, away from Saul for, for a few years. Uh, and many people think that this is God's primary way of shaping David, um, having, having him in the wilderness, uh, moving around, not, not just always fearing for his life, but with his band of merry men there. Um, then again, later in his life, his son Absalom uh, decides that he wants to th- uh, like overthrow his dad and take the throne and, and kill his dad. Um, and so David finds himself on the run again uh, in the wilderness of Judah. Um, this is many years later. And when it says in the wilderness of Judah, we think that this psalm was written when he's on the run uh, from Absalom trying to get him, not from Saul. So he's been the king for a while. Um, If you know the story of David, there's lots of family dysfunction uh, in in David, in in David's family. So if your family is a bit weird and you're spending more time with them over these holiday times, David is a good friend uh, for you, uh, and you should spend time in... Second Samuel, looking at his family and their life, and you'll feel much better about your family and your life, because uh, most of us don't have a son who's trying to kill us. You know, we're not like heading off into hide in the Karoo. Um, yeah, the Karoo is awful. I just want to say, having driven down through the Karoo, I will get to the passage soon. Having driven down through the Karoo again recently, it's terrible. You know, I have a friend. I mean, he's like an acquaintance. I mean, he's a good friend of mine. He should be an acquaintance. And he goes on holiday to the Karoo. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Who goes on holiday to the Karoo? It's like where you go on your way to holiday, like Cape Town, or no one goes on holiday to Joburg unless they have family. Uh, but he goes on holiday to the Karoo. It's like he stays there for a whole week. It's terrible. There's nothing there. It's a barren place, and the wilderness of Judah is, a, is even more barren than the Karoo. It's an in- inhospitable, difficult place to live. It's hostile, And it's important to remember that as we go through the psalm, this is where David was when he wrote this. It really matters, and it's really important for us to understand that when you read this, these words were written when David was fearing for his life on the run, living in the desert, thinking that everything that he had built and everything that God had promised to him was collapsing. God had promised him uh, an, an eternal lineage of his of, of a son of his on the throne, and now the one of those sons is trying to take him out. You you might struggle to connect this, and you might be thinking, "Well, no one's, no one, none of my sons are trying to kill me. I'm in a pretty good space. I'm, uh, I'm not in the wilderness. I'm here. I'm in Bloberg. Um You know. You may be tired from a long year. I think many people are uh, from this year. You may, you may you must be fed up. Uh, uh, I and mean, we're on we're on holiday here and we thought we'd escape load shedding coming down to the Western Cape. Not so much. I mean, I think many people in South Africa are just, just tired and weary with just the normal patterns and rhythms of, of living uh, in South Africa at the moment. Uh, you, may, you may be feeling a spiritual weariness that's got nothing to do with physical exhaustion. Um, you may feel a disconnectedness in your relationship when you walk with God. You may have been experiencing long, protracted periods of, of wilderness, of just dry seasons, of, of a lack of even longing in your own soul for, for God. You don't want to read your Bible. You, you don't really want to come to church. You don't really want to spend any time with God. There's no desire there, and maybe there's an apathy even in, in that whole situation. You're here this morning, maybe because someone dragged you along, but you'd rather be somewhere else. And, and that happens. We, we, go, we go through patches of wilderness in our walk with the Lord. We go through patches of spiritual dryness. Sometimes there's times God is making us wait for things that can feel very difficult, make it feel like a, a season of wilderness. There's, there's many things that happen in our journeys with Jesus that can connect us to what David is experiencing here, even though we're not on the run and in a physical wilderness with David, there's almost always a connection of, of a spiritual together with the physical when he's in the wilderness. The famous British uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, that we may be in the desert, but the desert, but the desert shouldn't be in us. We may be in the desert, but the desert shouldn't be in us. You will go through dry and difficult times, but we can't allow those things to get into us and to shape us. And what we learn from David this morning as we go through this psalm are essential things for us, because I'll say this, if you're only going to be able to, as a believer in Jesus, worship when things are going well, you're going to do very little worshiping. You're going to be a very joyless believer if you're only like all in, hey, let's go for it, God, when things are going swimmingly in every area of your life. We need to learn as followers of Jesus how, how you worship in the wilderness. H- how do you worship in the wilderness? How do you worship while you're waiting? How do you worship through those dry times and in the midst of that? Because if you just allow um, your feelings to dictate all the time, you're gonna do very little singing and be, be very, um, yeah, yeah, just very joyless as a, as a believer. So there's a lot we can learn from Uh, here with David. I'm not going to read the psalm again because we'll dip into it again and again, but let me pray for us as we dive into these uh, few points I've got for us this morning. Father, we thank you that your word is alive and that it speaks to us. It's not that you have spoken. It's that you continue to speak. And collectively, we want to just pause and look to you and say, Father, would you speak to us? You know what our souls uh, most need to hear this morning. You, you see past all the pretending, past, uh, past everything, past even our own knowledge of ourselves to, to see exactly what we need. And we look to you now for the, the teaching, helping, revealing work of the Holy Spirit to use your word to speak to us. And to impart grace to us, to help us, to strengthen us, to love us, to correct us. That we would meet with the living God, our Father, who loves us this morning through your word now. That you do so much good to us through your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So there are a few things. I didn't number these points, so I don't know how many there are. Uh, Maybe you can number them as we go and tell me afterwards. But So point number one... Is uh, These are things pulling out of this psalm. The first thing you see in this psalm that I think is important for us when you're facing times of wilderness is that David knows God. David knows God. Starts there, beginning of verse 1. God, you are my God. God, you are my God. David had, David had a personal relationship and knowledge um, of God and with God. Uh, this why, why, why is this important? Because it, it's possible to know a lot of things um, about God. and, and if you, you, you can go to church for, for many years and know a lot of things about God. you can know where to find things in the Bible, you can know a lot of great Christians. it's possible to possible to be uh, amongst and around God's people and church for many years and, and still not have. A personal relationship with the living God. And this is the first thing you see in David is that he knows God. God, you are my God. And before we go into other things that I think are helpful that we can see in this song, I want to ask you that question. Um, do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with the living God? Because if you don't, that's the that's where you need to start. If you don't, I'm I'm delighted you're here this morning, however you got gotcha, you, whether you came against your will, you were invited, whether you're on holiday, in the, in the wonderful providence of God, you're here, and I'm here this morning, to ask you this wonderful question, and to plead with you, and encourage you that you, you meet the living God this morning before you leave this place. Your most critical need is to have a relationship with the living God who loves you. More than any other need you may think you have, coming to know him in a personal way is your deepest, deepest need and the highest requirement of your life. God, you are my God. David knows God in a personal way and it sets the agenda for everything in his life. The second thing you see here is that David sets his vision on God. When you're in a, a, a period of wilderness, it's important to set it's important what you set your, your gaze on. Have a look in verse two. He says, I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. But David's in the wilderness. He's not in the he's not in the sanctuary. So what what is what is happening here? Well, he's having to remember times with God that get him through, times with God's people, time in the sanctuary gazing at the power and the glory of God. When he's miles away from that, running for his life in the wilderness, he's having to engage his memory. And I think that this, is a, this is an important um, thing for us. This is, this is why it's good for some people who, who enjoy to journal. We, we, we all, as followers of Jesus, struggle from spiritual amnesia. We forget what God has done. We forget how good God has been. What did God do in your life last January? Do you remember? Can you celebrate it? You know, We forget. I forget what God did in my life three weeks ago. And the problem with forgetfulness is that you see in the scriptures, what is God's command to his people all the way, particularly through the Old Testament, again and again and again? Remember, be careful not to forget. Tell it to the kids Build a pile of rocks. Mark this day so that you will never, ever forget when I did this, when I did this, when I did this, when I did this. Remember, 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 because he knows we're prone to forget. And you need a living memory of the markers along the way, the path of your life, the signs of God's grace all along. And David engages his memory and remembers what it's like to behold God and His power and His glory. And he sets his gaze there again while he's now in the wilderness. Because guys, when you're in the wilderness, you've got options of where, what to, what to fix your eyes on. You've got, you can fix your eyes on, on what you're going through, on the difficulty of your circumstances. You can fix your eyes on, on, on people who you think may be able to help you. You, you can fix your eyes on the future. You can live in your preferred future, in, in the resolution, um, and your you know, desired outcome. The, the, or you can turn your eyes inward on yourself and think, I've got what I need to get through this. Within me are the abilities to get, get through this, this dry patch, this wilderness. And, and I think none of those are helpful uh, for us. David sets an example for us. He says, set your eyes on God. Set your gaze on Him. When you're in the midst of that, it, you may not feel like it. But it's what we we need to do because setting your gaze on anything else is going to be insufficient to help your soul get through whatever patch of wilderness you're going through. The next thing you see here in verse 3 is David knows what's most important. David knows what's most important. Verse 3, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. Your faithful love is better than life and life whenever you see the term faithful love in the bible it's one word that's translated faithful love sometimes your translation may say steadfast love uh, other variations of that it's the word chesed it's the word for god's covenant keeping love it's the it's the covenant that god makes that he originates and sets his affection on his people it's almost like a one-way kind of covenant. It's not dependent on you keeping your end of the deal. It's that God in His, in his grace and in His mercy sort of overflows with love and shows steadfast love and faithful love to His people. That's what he see here. And this is what David's talking about. It's not, it's not, David's not rejoicing in his love for God. He's not saying, my lips will glorify you because my faithful love is better than life. And the, he's saying, no, no, your faithful love to me is better than life. It's better than life. Not better than most things. He's saying it's better than being, it's better than being alive. Is experiencing and enjoying and knowing the faithful covenant love of God. I don't know many people who talk like that. I don't often talk like that, but I know somebody who does. You can read about somebody who does. When you read the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, it sounds like it, doesn't it? If you gave Paul an option, what would he say? I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But for your sakes, I stay here. So he he understood the ministry was more important. But you gave Paul an option. He said, I'd rather go and be with Jesus than hang out with you guys because he understood that the, some of the faithful love of God, it's better, than, it's better than being alive. It's better than anything. It's better than your, your happy place. <laughs> it's, it's better than the best holiday you can possibly dream. It's better than winning the lotto. It's better than life without load shedding. You know, we could just keep going. It, it's better than anything. God's faithful love. David says it's better than life itself. It's important for us to understand and lean into the secret that David is speaking of here, because um, sometimes things just don't work out the way we want. And if, if you're not a, a, a Jesus follower here this morning, this is sort of an advert f- for Christianity, that you know, there's not a big bow that just like God wraps around your life and everything is just lacquer. Christians get sick and die. People don't all get healed. Stuff goes sideways. Stuff goes sideways in your life. Some of your some of you stuff's gone sideways in your life. You're sitting with real disappointment in your life now because this hasn't, this year hasn't panned out like you hoped it would. God's not, God is not some like celestial genie who you just say the right things and then he's forced to make our lives amazing and just lacquer all the time. There are believers. You, you just go and read in Hebrews. Uh, we were doing a bit of this. I think I even mentioned Hebrews when I was here in September. There were people who were sworn in too. You know, it says the world wasn't worthy of them. There, there's no name. Oh, oh, it's, oh, Joab. He's the guy who was sworn in too. They're not even named. They're just faithful believers who paid with their lives for their faithful following of Jesus. Did they experience the blessed life, the prosperous life? You hear some of these guys who preach like a prosperity gospel. It's the biggest load of garbage you've ever heard in your life, because it just doesn't match up with real life, does it? It's the biggest load of garbage. I'm not on an absolute crusade against the prosperity gospel, but I, maybe I should be. Because it just, does, it just doesn't make any sense. And doesn't make any biblical sense, and it doesn't actually touch our lives, because we struggle, and, and, and we fall short, and stuff just goes badly. I was re- reflecting on, on, on a guy who told me the story of missionaries in Turkey. Uh, it was an awful story. Of all these missionaries who were faithful, loved Jesus, and they just got martyred there. Knock, knock, guys pretending to come and not find out about Jesus, and just gun them all down in the house, bang. What did those guys experience? the faithful love of God. Because faithful love is better than life because it goes the other side of life. You experience, if you're a believer in Jesus, you experience faithful love now, and you will experience faithful love the other side of death. That's why it's better than life, because it's longer than life. It's more real than the fact that you're alive, because God has set His covenant love on you. And it doesn't matter how your life pans out, God's faithful love will remain set on you. And David knew that. And it sustains him in the wilderness. He hasn't, things haven't resolved yet. Absalom hasn't called off the chase. Absalom hasn't been killed yet. David is having to trust in faithful love while he's still on the run. It gets you through the wilderness the next thing you see here is that David really knows what really satisfies. He understands and he knows God's covenant keeping love, but he, he understands what really satisfies. Verse 5, you satisfy me as with rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That rich food, the, the actual translation of it is, is um, with fat and fatness. Um, you satisfy me with fat and fatness. Now that doesn't really wash. Um, that's why they translated it rich food. Uh, now because unless you're one of those what low carb, high fat um, people, that that doesn't really gel. You know, most of us we're like told to eat less fat. Um, I think. Uh, and in our culture, maybe in most of the culture represented in this room, fat is not like the number one thing. Um, Years ago, I went on a trip to uh, Uzbekistan, a uh, missions trip to Uzbekistan. We had friends living there, and they have, a, they have a national dish there called osh. It's like their number one thing, it's the standard thing. And so, and uh, you imagine, this is actually a perfect uh, uh, thing to help me illustrate it. Imagine this round thing is just a big bowl, and there's like a mountain of rice here, okay? and veggies and a whole bunch of little other odds and ends in it. I don't quite remember all the stuff that was in it, but it's lots of rice. And you all sit around this thing and you carve out a little cave uh, for yourself. And it's a very communal kind of thing. And and then interspersed in all this rice are blocks of fat. Yeah, you can see why it hasn't taken off everywhere around the world. (laughs) blocks of fat but that's the delicacy that's the, the prized bits or the blocks of fat now it's a very honoring culture and they very quickly figure out who's the oldest person in the room and you're the one who's then honored and so what happens is you all got your cave and you sit around and then oaks flick flick the fat around and around to, to honor the person like oh here yeah, i'm honoring you i'm flicking some fat you know and so those of us on the trip i'm like hey i'm happy to honor everyone else you know and thank the Lord, I wasn't the oldest oak on the trip. My mate was the oldest guy, and in his little cave, started collecting all of these blocks of fat, just sitting there chilling, like waiting for him. Like I could just, I could feel his heart beating slower, just looking, just looking at him. Um, but for them, that's like. It's honor and it's blessing. And they're just, you know, looking at him thinking, oh, you're going to have the best day ever. Look at all the fat and the fatness that you're about to ingest. You know, that doesn't wash with us, but it's the richness. They, they understand that. And David understands it. He says, you satisfy my soul with fatness, with richness. God, you have an ability to give to my soul the richest, most wonderful things. I... I remember my first um, trip to America. I was just a couple of years out of school, and I went for part of a ministry team for about four months. And, and I remember the first time I went to one of those um, buffet, American buffet kind of things. If you've never been to the to the states, you have to go and experience this. Um, our hosts took us along, and it, this place is massive. I don't think the, don't think of the spur. Just think. Think of like Food Lovers Market, like even bigger, the building size of things. And you wander in, and there's just food everywhere. Anyth- anything you can think of, it's there. Massive, massive, just piles and portions. And I, I'm a very selective eater. Uh, I'm very fussy. I like a few things. I, just, I like them, and so I just keep eating them, and I don't feel the need to ever experiment with eating new things. I'm like, I don't care what it tastes like. I like the taste of this. I'm happy. And, you know, it's not great for parenting because now my kids are sort of a bit like me. And I'm like, eat it, try it. And they're like, no, you eat it. I'm like, no, you eat it. <laughs> they're here. I'm surprised they're not shouting in a loud amen. Um, anyway, back to the buffet. And I, there's just food as far as I can see. And Americans who look like they've, they've eaten half of it already are going backwards and forwards, uh, you know, up and down. And... I went and got. eventually decided something to eat, got a plate, went and sat down, chowed it, lacquer, feeling full, 100%. These oaks couldn't believe that I didn't want to go back and just clap another few plates. And I was like, where am I going to put it all? I'm like, I am done. Like, that was a big plate of food kind of thing. And they were just amazed that I didn't want to take advantage of the whole selection that was there. And when I read this psalm, I remember that experience. Because what happens to us is that we... We, we think that life is like a buffet of things that can satisfy your soul. There are, there are different options. And so if some people's souls are satisfied with this, and others with that, and others with that, and others with that. And you just gotta figure out like, what is the thing that satisfies your soul? And the truth of the Bible is what? That God is the one who satisfies your soul. And all the other gifts that God has given us can be enjoyed and can be celebrated, can literally be, you know, really, really enjoyed because they are good gifts from God, but they have an inability to satisfy your soul. And what often happens when we replace um, feasting on God for feasting on those things, your soul gets hungrier because you're feeding it junk food, so shopping, Netflix, Exercise, substances, traveling—doesn't matter what it is. Everyone's got their thing. That they think, if I can plug this in, it'll satisfy my soul. You try that. If you don't have a soul satisfied in God, you just get hungrier and hungrier. You live malnourished. Your soul is starving. Let me ask you a probing question this morning: What are you trying to satisfy your soul with outside of God? that's leaving you hungry and malnourished. Because we can't treat this like a buffet table. It just doesn't work. We need to walk away from the buffet table and say like David, my soul is satisfied in God alone. My soul is satisfied in God alone. Yeah, I can enjoy all of these kinds of things, but when I'm looking for what is gonna satisfy my soul, God alone will do. God alone is the one who's able to satisfy our souls. It's easier to run to the buffet table. It's easier to switch on Netflix. It's easier to do the other things. But your soul doesn't get satisfied. We have a phrase at our church that the gold is under the ground. The gold is under the ground, you have to dig for it. You have to work for it. I don't know if you've never been to a mine, but they don't have gold bars like lying around on the surface there. They have to, the gold comes out of the ground with a lot of um, blood, sweat, and tears. And in some ways, it's the same thing in having your soul satisfied. If, 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 if you think, and I'm not taking shots at anyone here, if you think that you can satisfy your soul with the verse of the day, in two minutes or so, and, and then you wonder, why do I have these ongoing longings? Why do I have all these struggles within me? It's because you haven't learned yet how necessary it is for your soul to feast in God and be full, so that your soul doesn't then hunger for the other things. We have a, at our church, I don't know what your church is like, but at our church we have just, guys just don't read their Bibles and they don't spend time feasting on God. And then they wonder why they allow all this other stuff into their lives and why they feel a million miles away from God and it's like, it's not rocket science, it's like you try to feast your soul on other things and it's left you hungry, it's it's that simple. And. I find myself guilty of this and so I share this with you as well. What your soul most needs in the morning is not a phone, it's not the news, it's not social media, it's none of those things. What your soul most needs every morning is to be satisfied by the living God. And I would encourage you to do whatever you have to to change your rhythms so that you can learn that practice and your soul can can feast on him. The next thing David, we see here in verse six is that David allows meditation to shape him. He says in verse six, when I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. I meditate on you during the night watches. Whenever you see the word meditation, I feel like it needs clarifying these days. You know, Christian meditation isn't, isn't emptying your mind, like reducing yourself to like humming and whatever else, and aligning all your whatever thing is. Like it's, it's filling your mind. It's filling. It's not emptying. It's a filling. When I lie, when, when I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. Christian meditation is this. It's the application of truth to your life in a way that it fundamentally affects how you experience life and how you then live. Many of us as Christians know a ton of stuff, don't we? I mean, some of you, if you've been coming to church for a while, you could be doing this. You could could probably do a better job with Psalm 63. You know a ton of things. How much do they affect our daily existence? That's the, meditation is the missing middle there. We as Christians read stuff, we hear stuff, so you'll hear a sermon this morning, and most of us will not meditate on it at all. We won't allow any truth that we hear to be massaged and applied by the Holy Spirit to the deeper parts of our lives that then fundamentally affect different ways of us understanding and seeing the world, and then the ways in which we live. And meditation is the key to this. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of it. Um... No one sits in the front row in your church, I see, huh? unless there's people are still coming. But uh, <laughs> well, let me pick you. You're in the middle. What's your name? Chris. Chris. Okay. Let's take Chris as an example. I don't even know Chris. Chris is. Chris is. Are you married? Yeah, you are married. Now I'm not going to ask you any more questions. Don't worry. No, I'm str- <laughs> There's not one of these comedy things where you pick on the eggs in the front. I just wanted to understand for the illustration. Chris is married. Chris has kids, whether or no, not he has kids, now he has kids. And Chris, Chris is worried about uh, provision, finances. Everything's got more expensive this year, hasn't it? I mean, my wife came back from the shops the other day, told me how much she spent, and I banned her from the shops. <laughs> I thought that might be easier. I'm going to do all the shopping now because it'll be cheaper. Now I'm a bulk buyer, so I don't get to do the shopping. When she sends me to buy toilet paper, I come back with like 36 rolls, and she's like, "That's not what I expect, what I wanted you to do." Anyway, everything's got more expensive. Chris is worried about how is the Lord going to provide for him. Chris has been a Christian for a while, so he can quote Matthew five: uh, "Do not worry, uh, you know you're worth more than the birds of the field. Look at how they are, you know the the." All the verses, all the stories. He knows all of that stuff. He can quote it to himself. But he still wakes up early in an anxious knot. And he goes to bed at night anxious about God being able to provide for him. What does Chris need to do? Chris needs to go and sit with his Bible in the presence of God. And so, God, I'm not leaving here until you, by the Spirit, allow this truth to be massaged into my heart. That you calm my anxious fears with this truth that it doesn't just sit in my head, but it goes down into my heart, that when I get up and I go out into my day, I'm not an anxious wreck, I'm not an anxious mess, because I have meditated, I have allowed this truth to seep into who I am, that you are my faithful father, and that I, Chris, am your beloved son, and you have promised to provide for all of my needs, and if I don't have it, I don't need it. You will not forsake me. You will not abandon me. You will come through for me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I choose to trust you. And he calms his heart in the truth of who God is and the truth of who his Father is. And then when he, when anxiety rises again in the evening, he meditates on it again so that he can go to bed and rest. You don't have to stay up burning the midnight oil because he trusts that he has a faithful Father who's able to provide for him. There is a difference, guys, between knowing stuff in your head and meditating on it through the watches of the night, so that it can sustain your soul when you're on the run and your son is trying to kill you. As an example. (laughs) Second last thing. David knows whose shadow he is under. Verse 7, because you are my helper, he says, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. There's a bird called the black egret, do you know it? Any birders out there? No? Okay. Black egret is a cool bird, it puts its wings out like this when it's in the water and it creates like a shady thing Like and the fish get confused and they get whacked. The fish don't know what shade they're under, they get confused. When you're in the darkness, when you're going through difficulty, it can be difficult to know are you, are you going through the valley of darkness or are you under the shadow of God's wings? And here is a truth that David knew and understood and lived in. He says, because because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will not go find the wings and shelter under them. David knew he lived under the shadow of the wings of God. It's this protective covering, this picture of God's wings being over the life of David. And this this is true for anyone who is a follower of Jesus. You live under the shadow of the wings of God. It's not a place where you go. This is who you are. This is where you live. This is part of your identity. And so we can live there and we can do what? We can rejoice. That's what David says. I will rejoice. He doesn't fuss bait. He doesn't just like white knuckle it. He says, I will rejoice because I'm under the shadow of your wings. This is the worshiping in the wilderness. He's still there. He's still on the run. He's still in the wilderness, but he knows I'm under the shadow. God is my helper. It'd be easy um, this morning to just keep going through this psalm and keep throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. Say, hey, this is something to believe. This is something to do, to do, to do. But, you know, I've experienced many patches of wilderness and and difficulty and dryness in my walk with with Jesus. And the last thing I want you to hear is, hey, here's a whole whole list of things to go and do. Do all these things and it will really help you. Uh, This psalm should be read backwards. Like like many of the psalms, actually, this one should be read backwards. We're not going to deal with those last few verses about the jackals and people dying and stuff. But from verse 8, I want to read this to you because this is the last thing we see here that David knows that gets him through. Is that David knows who's holding him. He says, verse 8, I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. In the Bible, God's right hand is the symbol of His power, of His ability, of His strength. God, your right hand holds on to me. This is the fundamental truth of this psalm, and this is one of the most glorious truths I think of the entire Bible: is that those who have given um, their allegiance to Jesus are Christ followers. This is what's true. Is that God has taken hold of you? God has taken hold of Chris. I'm picking on Chris, he's still here. God has taken hold of Chris, never to let go of him. It doesn't matter how strong Chris's grasp is, because Chris's grasp will be stronger and then less. You know what it's like? You're all for God and then you're apathetic and you waft and then you're up and then you're not and you wander away. You know that. So I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The truth of the scriptures is that God has taken hold of you. If you're a believer in Jesus, never ever to let go of you. He will hold you in the wilderness and keep you all the way home. Even when your grip slips, even when you stop holding, He has taken hold of you. And everything else that you see in this psalm that David does and knows stems from this. He knows that he is secure in the, in the strong hold and the strong grip of God and His love and His grace. And everything changes. I have this picture in my head of, of, of how this works. I haven't ever fostered or adopted um, kids. But I think it, it would be like this. Like Imagine kids being fostered. They, they come to a home... And they're on trial kind of thing and they come in there and they're like well if you behave well you can stay and so they're careful to not mess anywhere and do anything they get them sent back to the to the home they want to behave as well as possible get up their chances of being able to be brought into that family kids who have been fostered are different to kids who've been adopted Once it's done and they're part of the family, they've been brought in. Our church has got lots of kids who've been adopted. They're brought in, same surname. They're part of that family. Sometimes as Christians, we act like foster kids instead of adopted kids. We we stress so much about our behavior. You worry about being sent back, as it were. And the truth, the truth that changes the behavior actually is that you are adopted. Not because you signed up for adoption, but because God in his kindness adopted you and took hold of you. And he continues to hold you, regardless of your performance. He has got you. And you start there, and then you wade into all of these things that we've seen that David knows and does. It is important to long for God. It is important to desire him. It is important to feast. It is important to long, have our soul satisfied. All of those things are important and necessary, but they all come from a starting point of the secure love of God, that he set his affection on you. And he will never, ever let you go. Let's pray together as I read from Isaiah for us as we close this. Listen to this passage. If your soul is weary, listen to these words again this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles they will run and not become weary they will walk and not faint father we come to you this morning we thank you for your word we thank you for your presence we thank you for the ministry of the spirit amongst us And I want to pray for my friends here this morning. I pray for those who feel exhausted in the wilderness, who feel a a soul weariness, who feel a dryness, who feel distant from you, disorientated, who desperately need rivers of living water to wash over them again who feel um, tired from maybe not just a long year, maybe long years, unexpected disappointments. Thank you that there is more grace in you than we can ever comprehend. We don't exhaust, we will never exhaust your grace. And I pray that you would pour out your strength and your help this morning on those whose souls are weary, who are looking to you for your help pray that you would pour out desire for yourself and those who are apathetic and who just lost any kind of fire or passion or flame to want to be with you and to sit at your feet and to be in your word. I pray that you would give them the, even the desire to be with you and that you would remind us all this morning that those of us who are yours are deeply loved by you. You have set your affection on us. You have taken hold of us never to let go. You're the one who satisfies our souls. And so we come even this morning to, to feast on you. Thank you that there's an ongoing invitation from you to just come and to sit at your feet, to sit in your presence and to drink and to feast and give, uh, allow you to give our souls what they most need. For those who... I know you this morning, I pray that you would draw near to them, you would help them to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and come to have a personal living relationship with the God who loves them. Help us, Father. Help us when, even this week, we're tempted to lean on and and look to things that we think satisfy our souls. Help us to remember that you're the one that we need. You're the one that we need. And so we celebrate you this morning. We worship you. We love you. No one is as good to us as you are. No one is as amazing, majestic, beautiful as you are. And so we worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and glorify you this morning in Jesus' name.